0: Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org.
1: Welcome to you all. Uh, I'm Alex Jones, director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. Uh, Very glad to see you here today. It is our great pleasure to welcome Richard Gingras uh, to the Shorenstein Center. He uh, has, although it's not on his official biography yet, I hope it will be soon, he's on the advisory board of the Shorenstein Center now. And he is the senior director of news and social products at Google. But I think that the important thing that uh, is to know how he defines himself, which is a, a little more, um, a, a little more abstract. He says, "I consider myself a technologist. A technologist. I develop and architect products. And having heard him and uh, read uh, his uh, writing about what he does and what he thinks, I can tell you that he has done that." developing products and thinking uh, for his entire career and really throughout the, the, the brief history of, uh, of digital technology. Uh, he is also, and I'm quoting here, in his spare time, Gingras likes to build things, burn things, and make odd movies. I think <laughs> that may be the core of Richard Gingras right there. I don't know. Uh, Richard, we're very glad to have you with us, and uh, welcome to the first of many visits, I hope, to the Shorenstein Center.
2: Right. Well, thank you very much, Alex, for the for the gracious introduction, um, uh, and, and very glad to be here with you all. Um, I thought we might start off. I'll you know share you know fifteen or twenty minutes of, of of thoughts that I have about the the evolution of the of the new media ecosystem, as I refer to it. Um, but back to that point about t- technologists, we were having dinner last night and, and, and uh, Alex ex- ex- expressed a bit of surprise that I referred to myself as a technologist and not a journalist, and, um, and I, I should explain why. It, it's not by any means that I wouldn't be proud to, to, to hold the, the title of, of journalist. Uh, and whereas I have, over the course of my career, had a, uh, held a couple of roles that had the word editor in the title, um, I've never reported a story. Um, and so, I don't really feel like I've earned the appropriate journalistic chops to use that term. Um, and, and frankly, given that most of my perspective is indeed coming at this from more of an architectural perspective, more a, of a technology perspective, uh, more of a ecosystem perspective, that I think it's probably appropriate that I that I maintain that position. Uh, enough said about that. Um, what I would really like to do over the next 20 minutes or so is just give you my sort of quick sense of, of uh, how I think uh, one might begin to consider the future of journalism uh, and, and, more importantly, how one might uh, evolve one's thinking about what the nature and role and design of a news product is. Um, and as well uh, what the future of, of media business models are um, which I think is something that we're all interested in, uh, and, in and in doing that I have uh, largely as a result of uh, you know an interesting career uh, largely as an entrepreneur and also my work at Google have had, you know, an interesting perspective on these matters, and a very fortunate one. I consider myself you know, about the luckiest guy in the world to be doing what I'm doing at this stage of my career. Um, <coughs> but I think it's important when we look at the evolution of, of new media forms and, and the evolution of practices such as journalism that we really try to, in a sense, deconstruct the world that we're working in and living in. Uh, such that we understand better its component parts which might take and form our thinking about how they get reassembled and for that matter I feel that for the most part this really has not happened in a thorough way um, as we've gone through this transition over the last 15 or 20 years um, and, and I'll touch on that a few instances as well so let me just kind of take you through a, 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 a few thoughts and an analysis of, of, of the ecosystem and, and, and how it's made up and how that might uh, suggest how we approach it. And again, uh, I don't come to this uh, with the answers. Explicitly, I do not come with the answers. I do come with a series of questions um, uh, that I think worth considering. Um, and I say that because in many of these areas the answers aren't there yet. Uh, you know things w- will evolve um, o- over the coming year and will continue to evolve. Uh, you know another core point that I feel is important to make is that, Um, the pace of technological change is not going to abate. Uh, I, a while back, was having lunch with a fellow who was an assistant dean at a journalism school, and he made a comment that sort of suggested that we were somehow uh, in this position of of moving from one point of stasis to the next, you know, this difficult, disruptive period, and we were going to get to the other side, and everything was going to be calm and cool again. And I said, "Mm, I don't think that's going to be the case. Uh, because the pace of technological change is is indeed going to speed up and we've seen that over the last decade and uh, and it's going to continue going forward. We weren't talking about social networks five years ago um, and now that's a huge part of the conversation and a huge part of the ecosystem. Uh, you know, Just look at what's happened uh, on the device front. Six years ago we didn't have smartphones and now we have a billion of them between Android and iOS around the world. Uh, three years ago Uh, We didn't have tablets. Now we have 150 million of them uh, and growing at extraordinary rates. And as the unit prices of those come down, now Google is selling 7-inch tablets for $200. The adoption curves on that are going to go strikingly up and to the right uh, beyond what we see today. Uh, And and even with that uh, penetration of 150 million devices, and by the way, 30 percent of U.S. adults have a a digital e-reader, we're seeing that tablets are responsible for more website consumption and media consumption than all of the smartphones combined. Uh, so this is obviously has a powerful impact on, on, on how we look um, at media consumption. And again, uh, this is going to continue to progress. Uh, we see interesting developments in wearable computing and Google Glass and so on, uh, which are all very real and will continue to evolve in interesting ways. What this matters from a media perspective is it is changing the behaviors and how people consume content. Uh, you know, we're well past the period where you consume news in the morning before you left for work reading the newspaper and at night when you get back and had a few hours to sit down and consume it. Uh, media consumption and news consumption in specific, if you look at the data, is happening on, on virtually a 24-7 basis. It's there all the time with us. We reach into our pockets uh, with a spare moment looking for a bit of distraction, and we check out the latest news and check out the latest. And I say news in the broadest possible definition. It can be the traditional sense of news or the more broader sense of news as in the world of social. You know, what are my friends saying? What is my mom saying? These are equally important to us. But we're consuming it all the time. Um, We are also, um, uh, in our consumption of news, our whole approaches to – discovery of news have changed dramatically, and, and this has, I think, a huge impact on the very nature of media products and news products and their attendant business models. And let me touch on a few things there. Um, uh, when the web developed, uh, you know, the first significant uh, uh, advance uh, with, that came along with the web was um, uh, uh, search engines and specifically Google. Um, and, and these had a significant change in the landscape in not only the ability for you to satisfy a serendipitous, spontaneous, informational whim and get an answer, but in doing so to discover new voices. Um, and anyone operating a website, and particularly a news site, saw that over time, you know, such that now for instance, and many of you know this, uh, if you have a, a news site and are doing anything at all savvy about how you structure your content then you're seeing anywhere from 20 to 30 percent of your inbound uniques um, coming from search. Um, And by the way, when I say that, I mean inbound uniques uh, are are often people who are discovering your site for the first time, right? So this is a very, very important element if you're looking to grow audience. Then we went on from there to the blogosphere, uh, which was a, a, a dramatic explosion in the link economy as it matured. And there, too, many news sites doing anything right with how they propagated their content uh, were seeing a lot of benefit from, from links coming into their site. And, for instance, at Salon, on average, easily 10 or 15 percent of our traffic was coming from, uh, from, from links and, and other websites. And then social happened, uh, which has had an impact that's probably even larger than the two prior, uh, in that here, too, um, the social-sharing dimension is, is seeing sites see anywhere if, if they're doing, again, anything aggressive in the area of social, uh, 20 to 30%, if not more, of their inbound uniques coming to them by social. And interestingly, the social sphere uh, actually addresses another interesting dimension in, in, in media discovery. Uh, discovery via search usually comes uh, from a, a direct intent. Um, I'm looking for information about a subject. It could be kite surfing. it could be about the Boston bombing. And in doing so, I get answers and I discover voices about that specific topic that I was interested in. The social sphere is different because it opens it up to serendipity, uh, right? I, I may not be interested in triathlons, but the fact that a close friend posted something and said, here's a great article about a guy doing triathlons will cause me to go there. Um, These three segments are huge in in the sense that if you now uh, look at a website, and it's changed dramatically even over the last five years. For instance, when I took over Salon four years ago, uh, our traffic, we were seeing roughly half of our traffic come direct to the homepage, and half of our traffic, inbound uniques, come from these other sources, uh, which was okay, but in my assessment, really not very good, not good enough. Uh, and, And let me be clear. You want as many people as possible, obviously, coming direct to your homepage because those are your loyal visitors, right? But the truth is, you also want, by percentage, as many as possible coming from outside, coming from other areas, because that, in a sense, is is your is your is your marketing funnel to bring new users to your site. Um, I clarify this because I've said that at times, and someone said, "No, we're doing much better than that. We have sixty percent of the people coming direct to our homepage." And I say, "No, you don't understand." what i'm getting at now it is more typical to see a new site again doing well by these three realms to see only 25% of their traffic coming to the website directly and 75% of the inbound uniques coming from elsewhere right that's a very powerful statement uh, what that effectively means and if you then think about and i'll talk about this in, in, in a few minutes what that really means is that 25% are coming to the home page and 75% are coming where? The story page, right? That, that what you presume to be the front door to people coming to visit you the first time, that nice polished foyer with the chandelier that you have is indeed not where your new visitors are coming for the first time. <coughs> they're coming through the side doors. They're coming through the back door. They're coming through the garage, <coughs> right? And that obviously changes one's thinking or should change one's thinking in terms of how you take and design a website and how you take and embrace that new visitor for the first time and impress them with what you do and impress them with the breadth of what you do. The bottom line of that, to, to be quick here, is that in a sense the atomic unit of content has changed. Um, this happened first in the music industry. The atomic unit of content in the music industry for years and years was the album and then the CD. But then with the proliferation of, of, of online and various mechanisms now, Spotify, so on and so forth, the atomic unit of content in the world of music is the song, right? That's what gets propagated and shared. And similar thing in the media environment. The atomic unit of content has shifted from that branded package of stuff that was the edition of the paper, the addition of a magazine, to the story. And that's very important, again, as we consider how do we take and, and, and build products and – and look to provide services to the audiences out there that we're trying to approach. One other thing that I would like to touch on is, is, is though I tend to feel that, for the most part, we should be looking forward in our thinking and not backward, I, I, I think there's a particularly powerful lesson in this regard in, in looking at history. And this, I think, is particularly relevant when it comes to business models. I have often been frustrated in this last 10 or 15 years. And, as the industry deals with the disruption, to see what I some, often think of as is an overly romantic notion of the the exquisite beauty of the newspaper business model, right? That was that's really what makes all of this work so well. Um, and you know that might be a nice way of looking at it, but it's also important to understand how that came to be, because embedded in that is somehow the suggestion that the newspaper business model. Uh, was always a supremely profitable way of propagating news and information, and the truth is it wasn't. Um, and I, I, I'd known this, and for a long while I've been looking to find the right data to really see if we could map this out a, a little bit more carefully. Because historically, if you go back 75 years or or, or, or longer, uh, the newspaper business is a dog-eat-dog business, a very competitive business. And the newspaper with the leading circulation in the market might do well. Number two and number three might do okay, and everyone else struggled. But then something happened in the late 1940s that changed the world of newspapering. And that change was the introduction of television. And when television was introduced in the late 40s, it very quickly, within three years, took about 15% of the advertising market. 15%. That's a huge amount of money in a very short period of time. And interestingly, it took it all out of newspapers. It didn't take it out of direct mail, it didn't take it out of magazines, it didn't take it out of radio, it took it out of newspapers. And so what you saw, and that was just in the first three years, continued to grow. And so what you saw over the 50s was this progression that occurred that ended up in a contraction in the number of newspapers, right? You went from cities like New York that, depending on how you defined what the newspaper was, you had more than a dozen maybe two dozen newspapers. The average market maybe had five or six. But by the time we got to the early 60s, that went from five, four, three, down to two, down to one, maybe two in some cities where the Department of Justice said it's okay for you guys to operate as one. And what happened then was the guys remaining standing. So from a Democratic perspective, this wasn't a good thing because we had fewer voices. But from a business model perspective, for those who remained standing, they had tremendous power because they had near monopolistic control over the newspaper ad market uh, in, in those cities, and they took appropriate advantage. Uh, the, the nature of the product expanded. We went from newspapers that were maybe two sections to newspapers that had lifestyle sections and food sections and gardening sections on Friday and automotive sections on Saturday and so on and so forth very rich products, largely driven over a very wise assessment that there were advertising opportunities there. The ad sales department came to editorial and said you know, we could sell a whole lot of advertising to, uh, 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 you know, to, to, to car dealers <laughs> if we had an automotive section that wasn't just listings. And so on and so forth. Very, very powerful. And so the newspaper developed as this almost all things to all people product in their communities. Great thing. But then the internet happened. And the Internet happened, obviously broke up the core nature of the distribution environment. And if one's interested in really how uh, particularly media business models get created, then you have to understand the nature of the distribution Mm -hmm. landscape because that drives nearly everything. Uh, So we went from a highly controlled environment to an immensely open environment that changed the nature of the game, as we know. Right, one of those people who took advantage of the openness of the internet was Craig Newmark. Just because he had a simple idea about sharing what he knew and creating an environment where people could find stuff, he wasn't looking at how do I disrupt the newspaper business. He was just trying to create something interesting. Uh, but obviously, he disrupted the newspaper business because he effectively took away their cash cow. Right, um, but it's but it's but it's more than that. Um, when I was running Salon, there, too, looking at the advertising business <coughs> and recognizing that hard news uh, typically drew the lowest CPMs, soft news, higher CPMs, lifestyle information, higher CPMs, travel content, higher CPMs, I went, we need softer sections in addition, and so we did that. But, of course, what we found was that my cleverly written food section on Salon was competing with 20 sites out there who were focused just on food or just on vegan cooking and doing it with much sharper commercial intent and eating our lunch, no pun intended, when it came to ad sales, right? And so the importance of that point is when looking at the new ecosystem, as I've said to is w- with folks who you know in, in, in newspaper companies, that it's important to look at the new landscape and the new marketplace in a completely unique way, right? that what might make sense as an umbrella brand in the newspaper world may not make any sense at all in this new world um, and, 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 I'll, you know, and, and in fact uh, that's caused me to begin telling folks that the very notion of transformation is a dirty word and what I mean by that is when you look at a media company who's saying how do I transform my current products into this new realm what they tend to be doing is looking at well How do I take what we did here and make some changes and make it work over here, right? How do I take the Dallas Morning Herald and make it work as the Dallas Morning Herald over here? And unfortunately, that's a very dangerous path. One, it's a path that leads to incremental decision-making and compromised decision-making, because often it's, well, we did it this way for good reasons, and I know we should do it this way over here for those reasons, and maybe we should settle somewhere in the middle, right? Um, Unfortunately, the competitors to those newspaper companies aren't thinking in those terms, right? You took to Ben Ha, who's doing Circa, the guy who did I Has Cheeseburger. He's not, he has no burden of the past in guiding his thinking. He's got a fresh canvas at looking at news products that work in this world. And that is absolutely crucial, right? He doesn't have to worry about, about having to eat his own young to do the right thing in the new economy. And so I sense with when I look at media companies, they say it's not about transitioning the product that worked in this uh, in this environment here to this one. It's how do you look at this new economy and see where are the opportunities here, you know? With that, my, my comment about the Dallas Morning Herald was quite literal. I was talking to the CEO, and he had this wonderful presentation about how the Dallas Morning Herald was going to be like The Economist, you know, influential information for influential people, so on and so forth, uh, and with a subscription model. And I said a lot of good thinking there, but he had also mentioned that the sports section of, the, of his paper was the most popular sports section in Texas, sports, of their sports site was the most popular in Texas. And I said, well, if that's the case, maybe you want to look at this differently. Maybe what you do in sports should be a self standing product that is not subscription based because Budweiser will gladly pay for impression ads on that content. Whereas other parts of your paper might be totally appropriate or news site might be totally appropriate behind a paywall, right? You have to look at these in their component parts. And in a sense, I think that's how media companies, if again, if you look historically, media companies who survive disruptions tend to do so because they acquired new players who were effective in the new environment, not simply by transitioning products and businesses from the old environment. Um, so again, as we look at the new ecosystem, we have to realize that, that virtually everything has changed. Everything has changed. It's been nearly flipped on its head. And as a result, what I've encouraged folks to do is to rethink everything you know, and ask every possible question. And it doesn't mean that the answers are always different. I've even said question the mission. What's the mission? What's our approach to ethics in in this new world? Not that our mission should necessarily change, but the intellectual process is a healthy one. Not that our ethics cha- have changed, but that our approaches to certain practices in this new realm indeed should be different. Right? We need to ask these questions. We need to ask questions of what's the appropriate design for a website that lives in a world where you're getting uh, people visiting you through all kinds of means and you're looking to transition them into into persistent users. How do you design that website such that the article page is as inviting and compelling with that objective that you thought the home page was designed to do? Uh, what's the what's the what are the new approaches to the form of of, of narrative journalism in and unto itself? What's the role of the long-form article? And I'm not suggesting that long-form articles shouldn't be written, but if we're living in a culture where people are consuming their content in in, in bite-sized bits, in bullet points and in status messages, might we think differently about form and approach it in different ways? I noticed that ProPublica, that obviously does great investigative journalism and deeply long-form journalism, when they approach the social sphere, they're not doing just one post. Indicating that they have this interesting investigative piece, they do twelve or twenty each with an additional and new little nugget of information. Right, they're dropping all kinds of different bait into the ocean, and in so doing, are dropping additional nuggets of knowledge into people's heads. That's simply in the in, in looking at innovation in the form as it applies to social networking. Uh, what's the approach to content architecture? What's the approach to that article page to express? Uh, the full depth of the expertise of the authors behind it, and at the same time uh, provide uh, enticements to those who might find other pleasures in the site that they're visiting. Uh, How do we take full advantage of computational journalism, which I think is, is one of the most powerful steps forward for journalism and why I feel so confident about its future? Can we get to a point where there is an investigative, uh, there is a piece of investigative reporting that is actually a living, organic, uh, uh, evergreen uh, bit of computational journalism that's constantly looking at an area and surfacing anomalistic information that we can all see, right? The Washington Post did this several years ago, but it was a one-and-done and and it shouldn't have been. They had the benefit of having a great intern, a guy named Adrian Halvardi, who did everyblock.com, and they were doing the usual three-part series on the state of the D.C. schools, and he did an, a, a companion site that allowed you to look at every school in the district and see what were the average test scores, um, what were, were there criminal complaints, what was going on with, with crime in the schools, were the light bulbs out in the hallways, right? That was a very useful piece of, uh, of work that allowed someone with a student in that school to go check that school. You know That really, in my thinking, should have been an evergreen model, and theoretically with monetization opportunity, because when someone goes to that school, I know they have kids, I know where they live, I can surmise what their income is, and I might be able to target my ads in a different way. Um, who's going to invite, in, invent Reporters Notebook 2.0? Right. In a world where there is no limit to the capacity of content we can put on the website, how do we make that reporter, that precious capitalized resource, the reporter, ever more efficient in gathering information and packaging it to be to be to be put forth on the web? Um, how do we look at the at the at the roles in a news organization? What's it mean to be an editor in this world? What's it mean to be a reporter in this world? How do the workflows change? Um, how can we best look at paywalls to understand what has value and what doesn't uh, in a rich media environment? And I'm fairly bearish when it comes to paywalls in general, but I do think they have a place. I think what the Times did was wise in the sense that they had enough levers that they could actually begin to test and try things. Uh, you know, w- w- when I do think of the economics of news, you know, there are areas where one does have significant value and can charge for it. But for the most part, general interest news is a commodity. You know, and if there is an issue with the economics of news, that there's too much of it. So we really have to get into the nuances of understanding what can we charge for and what can we not charge for. And last is, or not last, but there could be 100 questions on this, but the last I will ask is how do we create cultures of innovation uh, in, in institutions, in media institutions? in an environment where things are constantly changing. And innovation does not mean having a chief innovation officer. In fact, I tend to think that's the completely wrong way to do it, because what you really want is everyone thinking about how do they innovate in what they do, no matter their role in the organization. And this is, frankly, as I think, something where one can learn from tech companies who've, who've evolved over the last several years. People think of Apple as being innovative as a design company. It's actually usually innovative in materials science, right, understanding how they can manufacture things, how they can be clever in the use of aluminum to create in- new and interesting products. They think outside the box about the box, right? So how do we create institutions where everyone is is thinking about their roles? And again, this is hard. I don't say this is easy. I had these challenges at Salon. I, had, I challenged the editors there and the writers there to think about the form, but that was really hard because people have a hard time uh, moving beyond their comfort range uh, in trying to express themselves in different ways. So I don't mean to, think to, to suggest at all that this is easy. Um, and I don't mean to suggest at all that technology is the answer. Uh, technology has obviously vast potential, uh, but the one thing I'm always clear to understand and state is while technology has value, it has no values. Right? It can be used for good or ill. And it's up to us to figure out what we can do with it. And that's true of the Internet itself. Uh, if there's one thing that's true about the Internet, and I, I don't think any of us would believe we should roll back the clock on the Internet, it has been an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. Again, we put a printing press in everyone's hands, and I'll come back to that point in a minute. It's an extraordinary thing. But the Internet, given how open it is and given how easy it is to express, also has this extraordinary ability uh, to 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 provide um, uh, to provide support and amplification for any belief, for any fear, for any thought, true or not. And we don't have to think very far to come up with many examples over the last decade or so where that is true. And and, and unfortunately, we have seen uh, politicians and media companies very cynically take advantage of that because they understand that affirmation sells better than information, right? So how do we address that? You know, we have, again, I think huge opportunities as we move forward with media, and I would not step back for anything in the world, but we also have huge challenges in front of us and I think responsibilities to begin to figure out how do we address some of those issues? How do we help people understand and separate truth from fiction? And how does the role of the journalist evolve accordingly? As I said, we all have printing presses. Well, a printing press is in our pockets. We saw that last week with with the Boston bombing. Uh, we saw, you know, if you followed it in the social realm, it was fascinating. It was powerful. It was chaotic. It was noisy. Uh, it was emotional. It was untrue. All of these things at once. Uh, great to have, but we also obviously have to have the cognitive skills to separate what's good from bad and understand where the value is and where the value is not. And if there was anything unfortunate about last week, it wasn't the fact that Reddit spawned information that suggested a Brown University student was the guy. It was the fact that we had theoretically respectable professional journalistic institutions reflecting that back to the world without any vetting. And I would hope that we see that news brands and journalists going forward recognize that their power and value is in their credibility, and their power and their value is having the wisdom to hold back and not simply propagate a piece of information because it's there and it's enticing, and we're in a fast, breaking news world, and I want to be there, too, and I just can't stop myself. Right? We have to really work hard at that. So again, I've, I've, I've gone for a bit longer than I expected, but I just wanted to share some, you know, a, a, a sense of, of, of thoughts about the landscape. and and how we can begin to think about this. Um, As I've often said, I do believe that the future of journalism will be better than its past, and I could make the case that that is true today, simply based on the fact that we have so many more voices in the ecosystem. But uh, there's a lot more work to do. I think in truly getting there, we're going to have to get beyond, you know, we, 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 we're going to have to embrace beyond what we have today, new forms, techniques, technologies, capabilities. And to some degree, we're going to have to get comfortable in with the chaos that an open environment has and how we can help actually our consumers, our readers, uh, uh, begin to parse that chaos into knowledge versus data into fact versus fiction, uh, into wisdom versus lame expression. Uh, and with that, I'd be delighted to discuss further. i
1: I'd, I'd like to ask the first, and then we'll uh, open it to, to you. Um, I take your point. I think you're quite right about the way the newspaper business evolved in the golden era. But I think one of the things that came out of that history, both the competitive part of it and the golden era, was a sort of sense of, uh, of values. Uh, journalistic values. And if, again, I take your point about the idea of of, of transformation uh, being probably a compromise, and maybe for the commercial success and, and survival even um. of journalism, it may not be the right way to go, but is there a way, or how do you imagine projecting those things from the past, those journalistic values, if you will, into this new world of warning. Mm-hmm. How do you see that, and is that something that is a plausible thing to expect could happen, or are we kid- deluding ourselves?
2: I hope we're not deluding ourselves. I think it's extremely important that it happen. I mean, again, I said we should, uh, you know, we should question everything, and and I don't think the mission changes. And depending on, you know, we all have different definitions. Um, you know that the role of of, of journalism is to you know uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Whatever um, you know, I, I find that all very valid. What I do think requires particular thought is 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 how do we how do we operate against that mission and what approaches are necessary today versus before? I'll give you an example. Um, I, I think in the in in, in the in the world of traditional media, particularly in that period 1950 to 2000, uh, the, the world of journalism uh, basically operated on the notion of, trust us because we're us, right? Well, that really hadn't worked out very well, and, and, and the Internet didn't break that. I mean, we have been looking at consumer surveys for 30 years that showed declining trust in the press. Trust us because we're us doesn't work. We have to figure out new ways to express that. And I don't know all the answers, but I'll, I'll, I'll surface an interesting question that came to me. I was having a long conversation with Larry Page about, about the news business, and Larry is obviously a very, very smart guy. He tends to look at things in different ways and connect dots in different ways, and he said, Richard, he said, why don't journalists footnote their work? And I went, hmm, you know, valid point. And he didn't mean links. You know, saying, you know, just nice to put links in articles, great thing. But he literally meant footnotes. Like, why should I believe that this is a fact? What caused you to conclude that this is a fact versus that the sky is green and not blue or blue and not green? Uh, and and, and, And I don't believe that means that, you know, do I expect everyone to follow the footnotes? No. But I actually thought that was a very valid concept. Simply, in, in as much as anything, with the value being in the symbolism of having that architecture there of saying, I'm a journalist, and and, and what I express is meaningful, and it's meaningful because I've done my work, I've done the research, and you all have, and here's some proof points to suggest that. And again, we have unlimited capacity, so why not? That's why I go back to reporters' tools. Can we make it easy for reporters to do the right things in these regards? You know, these, do these become useful symbolism, uh, sim- symbolic elements to separate the professional journalist from everyone else? Um, I think that's extremely important and clearly extremely necessary in a world that is more chaotic uh, from an information <coughs> perspective, where we do have to separate the wheat from the chaff in different ways.
1: Let me invite uh, students who are present to take the first crack. If you're a student, if you have a question, raise your hand. Yes.
3: One of the things that came out of the Boston Marathon coverage was the efficacy of local media. I think it was pretty clear that the Globe and WBR and WBZ oftentimes had things more right than everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm wondering from the consumer side, from the reader side, how Mm -hmm. Google or other places can direct, can take location into account, um, especially Mm -hmm. given that on the face of it, the goal was competing with all other papers
2: across the country? No, that's a really good question, and frankly, one we've been giving a lot of thought of in the last several days. Uh, you know, a, a, among the work that I do on the social side is is I, I oversee the teams doing the algorithmic work underneath Google+, Plus. Um, all kinds of different stuff, from understanding the corpus. One big element is how do we understand the corpus of social expression such that we can drive discovery, you know, that, that can we understand can we understand and map the conversations about triathlons versus Boston bombing and do the right thing and surface this so folks can discover it and find it and follow it, right? Um, uh, uh, doing a lot of work with hashtags, and, and not much of which has not yet surfaced, um, but all algorithmic. And so, you know, I, I spent a fair amount of time looking at what happened last week and following it on Twitter and following it on Google+. Plus. Uh, uh, which was extremely, uh, um, um, you know, active uh, as well as looking at other media sources. Um, you know, and, and it was fascinating looking at over that five-day period, analyzing it over that five-day period uh, in many ways. Uh, and, and we haven't completed all of that um, because it was very rich with expression. Uh, again, from, from, from uh, uh, people trying to convey new information um, convey in- existing information express themselves emotionally um, and it was even kind of interesting sort of tracking it along the story arcs of the you know of phase one of, of, of shock surprise and grief and phase two of determination pursuit uh, capture and phase three of, of resolution celebration reflection you know all of that there uh, but the, the, the most in- to me was like trying to figure oh, well, how do we help people begin to parse this stuff. Um, you know, one observation that occurred to me, and just, just kind of a glib thing, but, but, but I think it might be useful, because folks have said, well, you know, this social expression on a real-time news story is, like, dangerous. Uh, and obviously, again, there are problems with it. Um, and in a sense, it's, you know, we, we, Phil Graham referred to journalism as the first rough draft of history I look at the social expression around a real time news event as the first rough draft of journalism. Now, the interesting thing and the problematic thing is when we see professional journalists do the wrong thing and share that draft to the public, right? To, to take that Reddit reference to the Brown University student and convey it to the public without any sense that it might not be true. And in that case, probably not convey it at all because you really shouldn't be disclosing the name, right? Uh, but to to get to your question one of the things that we're looking at and and I, we don't have the answer in fact the answer i'm sure will be evolutionary is how can we from an algorithmic perspective help parse that that rushing river of expression into something that's more sensible and i won't say separate truth from fiction because that's uh, that's it's hard going there but can we do a better job of of surfacing relevant, respectable, uh, reputable sources versus not. And I don't mean by our human curation of saying WCVB is good uh, and, and Joe Schmo uh, from Reddit is not. But we can do these things algorithmically and understand reputations and doing the right thing. Can we surface, as we do with Google News, surface local sources against a story where local sources are relevant? Absolutely. I mean, we can do a – I mean, we're not doing anything there now in the social sphere. We do some of these things with Google News, but all of it can be done far, far better than what we're now doing. Uh, but, but there, too, the, you know, again, I think we accept the benefit of our pursuing these things, uh, and I hope as well that those in the journalistic profession, you know, look hard at some of these questions in terms of how they behave uh, in these situations as well, not to reinforce – The fallacious, uh, but instead help people understand the difference. Students.
1: Yes.
4: You mentioned that the atomic unit of media is getting smaller. I have a couple questions about that. First, do you think this is something we should be concerned about? Because it seems to me, at least, that it may not only be a change in the form with the access information, but that in the types of consciousness and awareness and information that smaller units of media also mean more fragmented awareness of information. Um, My second question is, with regards to access to websites, um, are there demographic differences between the kind of users who go by the home page and users who jump right to the article by the links? And my third question is, do you think that (laughs) the causes of this unit getting smaller are not only change in consumer demand, but in a certain catering to this kind of information. And would it be possible, hypothetically, for an online source to structure an experience (laughs)
2: in which... So let me uh, let me address those and let me parse the first one a little bit. When I meant the atomic unit of content, I, I wasn't referring to story length, okay. right? I'm referring to the, the the story, and the story is the Boston bombing, mm-hmm. not even necessarily a specific article. Though a specific article might be the carrier of that. <coughs> um, and, and to me, there no uh, to me that's just about how, how audiences find stuff today. In uh, recognizing that in how you approach the ecosystem, that's really the only point there, okay. right? Um it's how people find find stuff in terms of story length, uh, and again, I'm not suggesting that 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 long form or, or 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 deep content isn't useful. It's just recognizing how basically, you know, in a sense, what's the what's the pyramid structure of content today versus how we used to think of it, you know. And my sense is is you know. You, you, you need to kind of respect how people are parsing information in a media-rich world and recognize you want to grab them. Uh, I don't mean by enticing. You want to give them something that's consumable and let them go deep from there, right? Uh, but you can get into all kinds of nuances there. Another nuance there is, is can we, in designing our properties, for instance, recognize the read state of the user? You know, how far have, has this user gone with this story? What have they consumed before? What articles have they consumed from us before about this story, and might we reorder the page such that what they're getting is the freshest? So I think there are lots of ways that one can parse that. And I don't mean to conflate the notion that, that short bites mean <coughs> that people don't have the minds or the capacity for the depth, or that we're somehow catering to people's more basic needs. Might be part of it. It is simply reflecting that how people gather content. That if I'm parsing stuff throughout the day, then you know, make sure I can get the short bit, and and make a point of going back for more later. The third point, I've forgotten. The question. Um,
4: the third point is: Could it be possible to have online sources which are not providing this, which choose to only provide more comprehensive? Um, accounts. I guess, I mean, my, my concern is that I think the average person's awareness of news stories and and the world in general is very fragmented, mm-hmm. is based on individual stories from places and does not develop into comprehensive understandings when there is an event somewhere in the world we know about, yeah, the bombing, yeah. we don't know about the historical context. And I'd like to see new sources would make
2: this a necessary part of the experience? I and mean, I would certainly hope so. Uh, but again, I think even with those sources, I mean, you get part of what I'm saying, I had this discussion at Salon several years ago, and um, I had done this analysis. We were still paginating articles then. And what I found was that on any article longer than 1,500 words that only 27% of the audience got to the end. Right? And, I, you know, just fall off, fall off, fall off. And what I, my challenge to the group was like, you know, if our objective is to get knowledge into people's heads, then maybe we're not always using the right form to do that, right? So I just come back to that. And I, 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 I'm not expressing a view as to what the right form is. But cultures evolve. Our abilities to process information evolve. They change with media form. Uh, if you way, go back that, to the... that was
1: true even in the newspaper era. The percentage of people who jumped from page one was never above thirty percent, and that's why Al Newhart, when he created USA Today, didn't have any jump stories off the front page of USA Today. Right. Didn't change. But <laughs> then, but then there are those thirty percent of articles that people do jump to, that they read all the way to the mm-hmm. end, that win the Pulitzer Prize save lives, change the world. So. Sure.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously there's value in both. And, and I'm, I'm not esp- espousing a particular approach is simply to say, and again, this is, this is, you just take this back to McLuhan, right? That every new medium begins as a container for the old. And people look at the internet and say, well, the internet is like all kinds of media, and it is. But if you look historically at radio, for instance, you know, when radio first began doing news, they were reading the articles from the newspaper, Right? But then somebody recognized, well, you know, the sentence structure eh, doesn't work as much for the listening ear as it does for someone sitting in their easy chair reading the article, right? And so you saw a completely different writing style for news on radio and news on television versus news in print. That's really all I'm suggesting is, is that we owe it to ourselves to give creative thought to the form to be appropriate to the, to the media environment that we're in and the culture that we're in today. Other questions? Yes.
1: Well,
3: I just have a comment, but um, the way I learned about the Boston bombings, um, it was 10 after 3, and I had booked actually a class at Apple. And I get my mother really frantic, we're in the world of you. And finally, I keep saying, Look, I'm in the Apple store. She's like, Which Apple store? Which is so incredible. Because I go to different Mm -hmm. Apple stores in different parts of the world. And then, you know, she says, Well, are you okay? Are you okay? And I say, What are you talking about? I'm okay. And finally, comes out. I have to step out because it's so crazy. I, you know, she's calling from a completely part of the world, and you know, she doesn't sit at the computer. She was just happened to, and she does not TV. my dad wanted to watch the team. So, the what I'm saying is, how can we really put a, a cultural global envelope on the news now? Because this is not longer the local. The local comes at a different level, and you know, I followed this this particular issue. Really, I love was the New Yorker because it gave me so many different points of view because I can connect them because I know the city, because I write about the city, mm-hmm. because I'm a technologist, I'm an artist, I'm, I'm a photographer, I used to live in Newberry mm-hmm. and on Copley, so I had. What, a What's perspective. your question? My perspective is, how can we develop this cultural, global envelope that we need to focus now in our world news?
2: You mean, how do we get people interested in things that are important to them that they don't necessarily have an interest in? Well,
3: that's the way we have to be
2: filtered, but how do we go about it? Okay. Um, I mean, those are all age-old questions. Um, you know, and I, you know and, and I think the way journalists have always approached it, and I don't think it changes, is how do we make something that we think is important and services our mission compelling to others? How do we tell that story? right and i do think people find information in that way but not that everyone's going to consume it right not that everyone ever consumed you know i mean if you again if you look at this historically it's not like in 1965 90% of the population of new york was reading new york times right they weren't um, uh, you had a small segment that read influential newspapers and many who did not um, you know I, I think it's that ongoing challenge of how do we how do we do our best to make important information compelling to others?
1: Do you think you could find statistics that would demonstrate that social media has increased the consumption of high quality journalism simply because people are saying you ought to read this
2: I absolutely i i I would think so i I would think so i you know this morning we were you know someone asked a question which which often comes up is you know, in today's world, and particularly in today's world of personalization, aren't we in danger of, 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 of building filter bubbles, uh, you know, silos of thought, which, which I don't buy. I, I, I have zero fear of that. And my analysis is simply as follows, um, uh, you know that we have always lived in a filter bubble of one dimension or another. We lived in circles of influence. In my circle of influence, when when I was 10 years old uh, in 1962 reading a newspapers, I read the newspaper my parents got. I read the magazines my parents got. And when I started going to school, I started reading things that my friends recommended, you know, Mad Magazine or whatever it was. You lived in a circle of influence. And, and, and the reason I don't agree with the filter bubble is that now in today's world, especially with social is that we all, on average, are engaging and touching many more people than ever before. right? My group of friends on, on, on the other social network... Um, <laughs> that,
1: that will not be named?
2: <laughs> With the blue logo, uh, includes lots of people who are completely politically divergent from me. Uh, you know, and I see more of that stuff than I otherwise have would. So I, I don't really buy the notion of the filter bubble... Um, And I don't get concerned about personalization as much as anything because I don't think personalization is terribly effective, um, at least the way we think about it today, because personalization tends to focus on topicality, which is not why people tend to be consuming information in the first place, right? The the personalization approaches to news say that… You know, because I've read 10 stories about Andrew Weiner's sexting habits, that I'm, uh, that I'm interested in congressional politics, or now mayoral politics, or I'm interested in Andrew Weiner. And the truth is, I'm interested in neither. I'm interested in the fall from grace, right? My interest in the story and my interest in news in general is, A, I'm bored, and B, I'm looking for the reflection myself in the human condition, And, you know, and I stated this actually to a bunch of editors once and said that, you know, personalization really should be more about sentiment. It really should be more about the seven-story archetypes. And it was interesting. After a bunch of the editors came and said, that was really interesting. And I went, you're telling me that's interesting? You've thought this way your entire careers. Why do you write the headlines you write? Because you're playing to just that. Calamitous death, rags to riches, fall from grace. Um, So... So the truth is, I think these these approaches that over personalize—they're not effective, because that's not really what people are looking for, you know. It's yeah, uh, the production of news
0: inside the newspaper and the news ecosystem speed up during the last years, and it's a problem that I try to think about. If you are working inside a newspaper or a news media, and is demanding from you more and more production of news. How you ima- how can we deal with that speed of production? How do you imagine if this problem can be?
2: The demands of real time news in this environment.
0: Well, I'll give you an example of this. Ten years ago, I started working in a weekly newspaper, so it was one article week. Then it became daily; it was one article per day. And now with all the new platforms, we are just producing news each hour, two hours. So there's a problem,
2: I guess, the relation between quality and quantity inside the newspaper, but I... Okay, I yeah. understand. I, you know, Again, I think that's an interesting challenge. Um, and, and And I don't know if there's any one-size-fits-all answer. I mean, I think it does ultimately coming down to understanding the nature of your brand and why people consume you and trying to stay true to that. It's easy to veer off track, and, and I've experienced some of that, You know, because, for instance, Salon, I know in, the, in, in, in today's economy, news economy, uh, it's very hard to command the interest of large advertisers without having a large audience. Which tends to to cause you to want to broaden what you do, do more of it, uh, you know, send pummel out more content. Uh, it does get to a point of diminishing returns uh, because people begin to, you know, yeah, you get a lot of traffic, but it might not be the the it's it, you know again as I said earlier. Whereas you want to expand how people can discover you, your ultimate value is to the folks who come to you every day. Those are the ones who are more likely driving the paying of your bills, because they didn't just come visit you once and read one article, they're coming to you every day and reading ten articles. Um, and to the extent that you sway too much, you skew your efforts in the direction of building audience by doing things that you otherwise would not do, for you loyal users, then you begin to lose the others. And we began to see some of that effect at Salon, and I think they're still experiencing some of that problem today. So it's a, you know, it's a challenge, because you're confronted with this new environment, you're trying to figure out how to do it right, um, and you don't necessarily always do it right.
1: John. Uh, Richard,
4: thanks so much for being here. Um, you, uh, you may not agree with the premise of this question, and my information may be a little wrong, but you probably saw there was a little bit of reporting on the uh, Google News algorithmic uh, patent application um, that, it, that was sort of in the news media. And, and uh, within that reporting, again, I don't know if it's right or not, you made a mirror Um, It suggested that your algorithm actually favors some things that are, um, that we would favor. This comes back to Alex's question. Um, Rich sourcing, original reporting, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I know you're always worried about people gaming Google News, but if you have explicit, if you have algorithmic standards that could actually raise the bar
2: um, for news organizations, um, why not be more explicit about what those are? You know, we're, we're re- I was going to say we're reasonably open. I, 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 by nature of your question, we're not. Um, um, <laughs> I mean, it, to me, it really comes down to some simple statements, which we do talk about. Uh, yeah, we're concerned about gaming, um, and, and so we're cautious about going too deep. But the truth is, you know, you just sort of have to look back at what we do. I mean, I, I you know, I had someone come to me recently and say, like, you know, you you could have a more popular site had you had you know bigger pictures and maybe you did more entertainment content and I say well but that's not who we are, you know our job basically is to reflect the industry, is to reflect the corpus of journalistic <clears throat> expression, um, and, you know it's it's really crowdsourcing at its best or 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 or, or fullest. Um, but what we look for is, you know, the the whole objective when Krishna Bharat invented it was, how do we give people um, a powerful way to get as many quality perspectives and views on a story as possible? And everything we do with the algorithm is honing to that. How do we find quality? Um, how do we separate quality from, from you know, low quality from high quality? Um, and and so you know, in many regards, like, for news organizations, it's, yeah, it's, you know, do good stuff. Um, um, uh, we do recognize the value of invest- of, of, of original reporting. Uh, you know, we do look and try to sense, you know, I, one of the things that I've talked about is, like, you know, if I know there are attributed quotes in an article, and that says it's probably a more richly reported piece that has none. Uh, you know, as an example. Um, do we look at the reputations of of, of the source and the author, and again, algorithmically and blind. Uh, so, I mean, the truth is our algorithm looks to follow certain core principles. Um, what we don't get into is, frankly, is, is the kind of nuances of, of um, you know, if you set up your article this way or if you put in meta tags over here, does that help you or hurt you? It's actually stuff we would rather folks not think about. You know, the fact is, Google search nor Google News pays much attention to meta tags. Uh, In news, we've actually introduced meta tags that we do trust. But there, too, we say, be careful how you use them because if you overuse them and are gaming us, then we'll, you know, penalize you for it. Um, So, uh, you know, we do try in sessions like at the Online News Association, we've been doing sessions where you know, we open up to questions and, and, and try to give people more information about how to do what they do. But there's really less magic to it, I think, than people think. Um, you know, a lot of it is just the hard core of how do we parse all that information and understand what it is and cluster it and rank it appropriately and do it in real time, you know, in 72 editions and in 45 languages and in 10 minutes. Richard. Yes.
1: Oh, I've got one more. Yeah.
0: What do you think of the, um, of the deal reached between the French publishers and Google, uh, which is a 60 million euros fund in order to sustain and to support and help innovation in journalism? And do you think you're going to expand this deal outside France?
2: Well, I was glad we were able to do it, and, and it – but it, it was largely an extension of an earlier agreement we had in, in France um, um, over several years. Uh, but I was glad we were able to do that. I, we thought that was a, a reasonable resolution to uh, uh, to the debate that was going on there. You know, We face this in various countries from time to time, and we're facing it, it – we don't face it in the United States, and it's typically – what we're referring to here is uh, you know, and we saw this earlier in the decade in the United States. In periods of disruption, you've got the existing players who are like you know, feeling the heat, and, and kind of looking for someone to lash back at, and we're an easy target. Um, and you know, the challenge back then was you know, was Google News's aggregation inappropriately leveraging third-party content? You know, were we violating copyright? Which we're very comfortable that we're not. And again, I just take it down to the basics. Now, of people who have a mature understanding of the ecosystem, as they do in the United States, recognize that the value of Google News and Google Search to their companies is huge. Uh, you know, the the we we put news in front of a billion users a week. Uh, we send more than six billion visits to news sites a month. The Newspaper Association of America valued the average visit of a news site at 27 cents. Now. I'm not going to suggest that a one-time visit from a news site is necessarily worth 27 cents, but if it's worth a penny, that's a lot of money flowing to those organizations. And I think more organizations are beginning to understand, again, the role of search, the role of social in the ecosystem and how they have to leverage that to their gain um, and, and not rail against it based on their prior understanding of how media worked. And so, but other countries are, are less far along in that. You know, In in Germany, they hadn't really been feeling the heat until a few years ago, but their business models were different. In in Germany, uh, more money comes from paid circulation than from advertising. So there's this unfortunate bit of legislation in Germany called the Ancillary Copyright Law that's moving its way through that would require search engines and aggregators to have a license to show a link, to show a headline and a snippet along with a URL. That to us, frankly, will break our model. break the principles that we follow because our objective is to surface unbiased results to queries and to the extent that those results are biased by the existence or lack thereof of a commercial relationship won't work. Uh, So we look to find other solutions to ease the transition as it were and the approach in France was to ease the transition and I think pointedly in that regard to put money into a fund that focused on the creation of new digital properties rather than propping up old ones of another era that frankly are going to be problematic in this one, however painful that might be. I'm
1: sorry to say we're out of time. Richard, this is great. When you come back, we'll show one of your odd movies. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much.